Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Cloak and Dagger podcast. My name is Patrick and I am joined as ever by my co-host, Bill. Hi Patch, how are you? I'm very good. I'm quite tired, but I'm very, I'm very excited, uh, and I'm, I'm, I can be tired because you're taking the reins on this one. Um, I feel like it's always such a big more effort when it's our job to be telling a strange story. Whereas this week, I can just sit back and relax. It's great. Yeah, no, I totally know what you mean. And actually, I'm really excited to tell this one too because it was one of those ones which sort of, like, the initial research was a little bit like, oh, this could work, and then it just kept giving and giving, and then I was like, oh, this is great, and I've never heard oh, of it nice. either. So yeah, I, li- I like those. Yeah. When the research just kind of builds and you're like, oh, this is, I've, I've done a good, I've chosen well here. This is all coming together. <laughs> yeah. Um, so if you, for some reason you're just diving into this episode, uh, we are on series 3.5, I think is what we're calling it or something. A, a short mini series um, on battles in the Cloak and Dagger podcast series, which is cool to say, Cloak and Dagger podcast series, which we can now, oh, we, yeah. we can probably say that we're now... Three and a half series in, so that's yeah. We're blue enough. chip. It's fine. <laughs> we're blue, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, so this season is all on, or this mini series is all on battles. Some weird and wonderful battles we found throughout history. We wanted to go for some like strange stuff because battles are so well trodden territory for history. You know, everyone really knows. Everyone knows Waterloo or. I can't think of any other battles. But, <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, only some people know them very well. I don't. But so we wanted to dive into some sort of stranger stories. So we've had some interesting ones so far in uh, Netherlands. I won't spoil them, but in Netherlands and in Austria. I was trying to remember my one. Um, but yeah. for this episode, we're jumping back to you, Will, uh, for a brand new episode. So, uh, and if you are new to this podcast or just new to this series, uh, we do have an Instagram channel at Cloak and Dagger Podcast, um, where you can see some really great imagery. Yeah, so I'm going to distract you. Will's very excited. I say my it's the Instagram thing right this time. I normally get it wrong. Normally, I feel like it every single time. We, yeah, we always like have to cut the first time he, he promotes our Instagram because he goes, and at the Cloak and Dagger podcast. It's so difficult. <laughs> I, and as soon as I say the, I know I've done it wrong, but it's just this, the whole thing's called the Cloak and Dagger podcast. And we decided it didn't look good as a as an Instagram handle. As a handle. But yeah. My God, it is hard. Every single episode I've struggled to say it. So I don't know. Well done. Maybe well I'll... done. Congratulations. Yeah, well... Congratulations. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. But yeah, if you if you want to um, check out some images and some extra content, head over to our Instagram account. There's some cool stuff there. But without further ado, should we dive into today's episode? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, so this week, it's my turn to take us to one of the stranger battles in history. And uh, for today's one... For once, and this might sound like a bit of a, this is not meant to be a flex, but there are there are very few white people involved. Hooray! No European. Hey, yay! <laughs> that's really good because it's far too easy to get stuck in history that's all white European history. Um, so yeah, yeah. great. Oh, <laughs> yeah. so interesting. Well done, I mean, this is. Ju- I, oh god, I, I feel really bad because. I know this is somehow about an empire, and I was assuming it would be about the British Empire, but presumably, given that's just an empire of white guys, it's not that at all. No, exactly. No, it's not to do with uh, the British Empire. Uh, our story will actually begin this week with the walkthrough. So Ooh, it won't fun. be... Uh, yeah. Are you copying me? to sort of get into it. I am, yeah. After yeah, last yeah, week, I thought it went I so well. Week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it, did, it works, doesn't it? It's a good... Maybe we really will does. just do this from now on. And it's a far... <laughs> b- I mean, there are probably people listening going, yeah, that makes way more sense. It's a confusing setup to talk about something else and then go to Listen, a this is what's called organic growth. It's okay. <laughs> this, is how, this is how all the pros do it. <laughs> sure, 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 yeah. All right, cool. Okay. So uh, for our walkthrough today, we will follow a eight-year-old girl, unlike a battle-hardened soldier that we normally do for this sort of series. Wow. Um, Can't wait for your voice. <laughs> we don't normally we don't normally play the characters. I mean, maybe that's maybe that's a, another organic step we should make where we play the characters that we're walking through us. Although not accents, do. not a good idea. Not a good idea. <laughs> yeah. Also, accents a thousand years ago, we're not going to get them right. So, oh, it would just be terrible. Yeah, I think I do know of uh, one podcast um, anthology of heroes uh, who was run by a, a, a podcast friend of ours called Elliot. Um, go watch, uh, go listen to his stuff, uh, anthology of heroes. But uh, he gets actors or just people from that country to come and do voiceovers wow. for him oh, so yeah that, 
Of course. I mean, I guess it's definitely not him, but that's so cool. Wow, that's... Yeah, it's very immersive. I, so, like, I feel yeah. like if we were going to do this, like, continually, we'd actually get someone in from that we country. We need to find least. some out-of-work actors because we can't pay them. And oh, yeah, no. Put no money. Yeah, yeah. Just a yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so anyway, yeah, back to the story. So uh, uh, today is the 13th of March, 1591. So to put that into a little bit of context, 1591 is three years after the Spanish Armada. Uh, So Mm -hmm. Queen Elizabeth I is ruling in England. And uh, what else is happening? It's always English history whenever I do that context. It's like, well, what else happened? Well, we are English, so it's, you know, insert uh, topical historical reference here. You know, I'm trying to think, yeah, because it's, we mostly find out about European history, especially that time period, because that's, you know, Henry VIII, Elizabeth I. globalization really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, re- it's, re- it's Renaissance era. So that's, a, although that's still yeah. very European focused, I don't know. Exactly. It's, it it's also like the rest of the world, if we, we could put it in terms of South America, but again, it's very much focused on the Europeans arriving in South America as opposed well, to anything else. Exactly. So that's actually quite a good way of putting it. It's the first 50 years of proper... Um, colonization but it's not actually been done with the english yet it's been done by the portuguese the italians and the spanish so uh, cool. that's what they're doing that this is the beginning of the sort of el dorado period where they're searching for the city of gold and all of that sort of stuff's going on but our story does not take place in south america it takes place on the continent of africa so nice for once cool. we're actually not on a uh, well actually no we have done a couple of african episodes but i think this might be just our third or even our second I can't really think. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it's a shame. We need to really say Zulu is the only one I can think of, which we've done in Zulu, and we've done Egypt, but that's oh, we have done Egypt. Very, uh, you know, Greek and you know a bit more sub-Saharan Euro- Africa. We haven't done we, except for one, the Shaka. Yes, yes. So I guess this is the second one. Anyway, so the person taking <laughs> us on our tour. Are we dividing up our our episodes now even smaller? Where we have. We have a little. Oh, that's a great idea. We could start matching the episodes. And if you if you're just interested in Africa or you're just interested in Asia, we could like create little, we could. little seasons yeah. of our old episodes. Although it'll be very poor for our demographic because most of ours happen in Europe. <laughs> uh, that's so. yeah, but that's assuming that Europeans are not interested in any other history. Which, given the fact that I couldn't think of any other battles other than Waterloo, isn't you know the strongest sign that Europeans are interested. But we're interested in. I think we're we're overcomplicating ourselves. And we've yeah, we so are so we're on sorry. such a tangent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Continue on with the walkthrough. Okay, so the little girl that we're uh, we're going to be taking a walkthrough with is called Anuli. And Anuli means joy in uh, her her native dialect. And oh, nice. as I say, she is an eight-year-old girl and she's living in the small village of Tondibi in modern-day Mali. So for those nice. of you who struggle with the geography, we'll put something up on our Instagram. But uh, Mali is sort of... It borders to the north. It borders, I think, Algeria and Tunisia. So it's sort of underneath. So you have all the sort of Mediterranean coastal African states... And then mm-hmm. below there, you just have the Sahara Desert. And within mm-hmm. the Sahara Desert, you have certain, um, obviously, nation states now. Um, but back then, um, Mali was one of them. And Mali is one of them, sorry, today. Mm-hmm. Um, but it also crucially borders um, Morocco at its southern border. So the Moroccan okay. southern border reaches the this other, this is the border we're talking about. Anyway, mm-hmm. Tondibi is this tiny village in the middle of Mali today. And actually, there's very little there. I actually couldn't find it on a map. On a modern map, really? I had to look at the ancient, the more ancient maps to find it. Mm. Yeah, but anyway, today it's going to be very important. Definitely the biggest day in the history of the Tondibi village. <laughs> Let's put it that way. Cool. Sure. Um, sure. Sure. Bold claim, but uh, I'll go with you on that. So we join her at dawn on the 13th of March, 1591. And she is wearing, as she leaves her her family home, she is wearing a simple shift dress made of cotton by her family weaver given to her on her last birthday. And it has been dyed a deep yellow ochre by her mother. So these tribes and these tribes people and uh, in this part of Africa would have their own family weavers. So within the family... Um, sort of group there'd be one Mm. person whose entire job was to weave for the family 
So oh, wow. that would be your job. It's a really interesting. So it's, like, setup. it's like in the house, you know, you're you're the cook, you're the cleaner, you're the weaver. Sort of, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also hmm. within um, a tribal system, there would be oh, they're the guys who look after the the, the cattle, and that those that would just be one whole family would do that. Hmm. And there'd be oh, you're the guys who butcher the cattle. You know what I mean? So like, it's quite interesting. Division like, of labor, but in a kind of tribal setting, yeah. Yeah, within families. So, like, you take over from mm. your father or mother and go for like that. But anyway, so, as she leaves her family home, which is made of reinforced mud bricks with a thatched roof, uh, she sees the sun cresting a large sand dune to the east of her village. So, all around this village are massive dunes and then a huge plain, like a dust plain, as far as the eye can see. I'd sort of imagine it like the Sahara Desert meets Tatooine, <laughs> sort of like a <laughs> mi- middle ground. <laughs> Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, so her first job of the day, every day for annually, is that she has to go to the village well in the middle of her village and collect water to feed the cattle because the cattle wake up with the, with the sun along with everyone else. Of course. And um, they rely on the cattle for basically their entire livelihood. So you have to look after the cattle. Yeah, 100%. Um, so, yeah, so today she, uh, she goes to get to the water and Tondibi actually is teeming with cattle on this day because it's expecting the arrival of a trading caravan that's passing through and heading for the markets at like the massive city called Gao, G-A-O which will become Mm -hmm. important later so this is about 50 miles from Gao in the middle of like a Sahara not quite a Sahara desert, maybe more like Savannah as well, there's enough shrubbery that you can tend to cattle but it's still very dusty and dry and you've got Mm -hmm. the Sahara desert very close um, so yeah, as Anuli uh, walks down to the cattle pens, she gazes out over the sandy plain and has a moment of complete panic because two vast dust clouds are converging on her village from the east and from the west. Ooh. So, oh, wait, so with both ways she looks, she just looks out and they're being closed in upon by yeah. dust clouds. Oh. And she thinks, are they sandstorms? Because that's hmm. very common out there. Uh, but coming from east and west, that wouldn't really make sense. With, yeah, they, like, the, the wind. wind goes one direction. I mean, <laughs> I guess some weird, possibly strange weather anomalies could have them coming in, but possibly. unusual, yeah. Yeah, but no, these clouds are not the work of nature. They're actually armies of men, and they're about oh. to clash in Anuli's little village of Tom Deby, oh, with all its God. cattle that's just there, ripe for, you know, market. So it's like, God, yeah. isn't that annoying? You know, you wake up early, go get some water, and just two massive armies are about to clash all around you. God. Yeah. And they probably have no, like, uh, you know, if you're saying in a village like that, it's fairly remote, they're not going to even know who's fighting, you know? No. No, no, like, no. have no idea what's going on. Yeah. It's like, why are you here? <laughs> why are you coming <laughs> here? Um, so, yeah, so that's the walkthrough done. I hope you enjoyed it. Ooh, okay, um, okay, that's got, that's very intriguing. Wow. Yeah. So to it's give interesting a con- that, yeah. Sorry, it's interesting that idea of, like, because, you know, armies, there's a kind of amount of, like, stealth you can or, or quiet moving of armies, but I guess out in desert areas, the, the the sandstorms that get picked up from, it just it's such an easy way to spot armies. You know, you think of, if you think of armies in Europe, you know, being able to quietly move through forests and stuff, yeah. Although you've got smoke fires and obviously people make a lot of noise and, and horses and that sort of stuff, you can kind of make it quite far. But it feels like out there in Africa, in these in these very dusty, dry climates, you couldn't hide an army anywhere because you just kick up so much dust and everything. Absolutely. And also trying to move an army. This is the 1590s. Like this time period mm. is like you haven't got sort of there's no sort of like you haven't got railway lines. You haven't got no. any way to cross a place, but you've got very heavy armor still. And there's mm. also things like cannons and heavy weapons, mm. and you're, you know, so you're weighed down by a lot of armor. So yeah. the thing is also when you're crossing something like the Sahara Desert, you have to go from oasis to oasis because you need to ah, drink. Of course, yeah. So yeah, you yeah, could yeah. definitely there's... couldn't hide because you've gone from only... one to the other. You basically got, you kind of have like a highway system because you can only go through set points. Wow, yeah. God, yeah, rough. Exactly. So, that's quite sad then they probably could didn't have any other choice of where they would fight so this poor little village gets kind of screwed yeah. out by just being in a arguably an advantageous position between two uh, oases which is where you need to build a village anyway but it just so happens to be where people fight as well 
exactly. sucks. Exactly, mm. it does. And also because basically for the attacking force coming from, I think from the east, they are on the way to that big city, Gao. That's uh, where they're course, trying to get right. to. They're not trying to get to Tondibi. It just so happens no. that the, uh, no. the people coming from Gao are meeting them 50 miles short. That's to mm. stop them mm. getting too close. That's the idea. Anyway, to give a little bit of context to this, because this isn't just a narrative, you also get some history when you get with this, <laughs> uh, this podcast. Yeah. You lucky people. This isn't story time. <laughs> yeah. Um, so Tondibi is a tiny little satellite uh, village of Gao, as I just said. And Gao... Along, it was one of the most important cities of the Songhai Empire, which I had never heard of until I started researching this podcast. Mm. So the Songhai Empire was a really, really powerful and successful, one of the most successful empires that Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, has ever seen. So, but they were quite, they were quite short-lived. So they only Mm. really, they started off as just a tribe within the Mali Empire, and mm-hmm. that crashed. And whilst they kind of then promoted themselves to being kings, and then they were kings for like a good few hundred years, and then they become emperors, and they're only mm-hmm. emperors for about a hundred years, something like that, and then yeah. things go tits up. So like it's only, a, like their rise is very long, but their ending is very short, if you see what I mean. Right, okay, okay. So they a long wind up for a kind of short burn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But uh, so they, the reason they were so successful was because they ruled basically all of modern West Africa. So the modern, the modern countries of Niger, Mali, Mauritania, Senegal, Nigeria, Guinea, Gambia, Guinea-Bissau, Southern Algeria, Burkina Faso, and the Ivory Coast or Cote d'Ivoire all came under this wow. umbrella state. That it is, is huge. That is massive. I mean, oh wow! Do you do you know like the square footage? Can we compare that to like Roman Empire and and it's, I don't know, I, the Mongol Empire? God, I actually did look that up. Because um, that can't sounds remember. like a huge amount of land. Like it was a huge out, amount of land, far outstretching a lot of what other people have achieved. Like what we consider to be some of the greatest empires of all time, and yet that sounds massive. I feel like it was half a million square kilometers. That big. <sighs> Fucking big. massive. Yeah, yeah. It's a big old place. So that, don't quote me on that. It will be somewhere. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> uh, I think it was about half a million square kilometers because it was boast, they boast about it in one of the articles I read. Mm. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that huge area, which later in the next two centuries would become the slave capital for Africans being enslaved to be taken over to America and the Caribbean. So this is like... wow. This was like the rise before the fall in terms of the Europeans haven't got here yet and they mm. were just kicking ass on their own. They didn't need yeah, yeah. any help from anyone. Um, and the real reason for that is they, they were a massive trading hub for mm. everything. They were incredible. So the core of its success really stemmed from the trading gold because there's a shit ton of gold in that part yeah. of the world. And, um, and salt. Because they had so much coastline, they could oh, gather salt they could- yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, so were they were people... they trading just with the we- the rest of Africa or Europe as well, and and any anyone nearby? Well, across there were lots of. Um, th- there's a bit of a dispute about this, but uh, you might have heard of. Uh, listen, you might have heard of the salt, the Silk Road, which was mm. a route that went from basically all across Eastern Europe and through Persia all the way to China, which connected yeah. China to Europe. And and that was a route that was uh, it, it kind of transcended all empires falling and, and countries changing. There was always trade going to and from east to west, right? But yeah. there is evidence that this was actually extended down through towards Egypt and then from Egypt down through the Sahara into the Sudan and into the Songhai Empire, where this was. So wow. actually, yeah, they were actually trading with the rest of the known world as well as their neighbours directly to the north. So like the sort okay. of Algerias, the, sort of the modern African states on the Mediterranean, which obviously mm. had trading ports with everyone else, if you see what I mean. Oh, I see. Okay, okay, makes sense. So they, yeah, they were kind of trading throughout the world, but kind of on a branch of the Silk Road. Yeah, exactly. 
Um, and they didn't just trade in gold and salt. So salt was used to preserve goods before we had refrigerators and everything like that. So that mm -hmm. was a very important thing. But they also traded in leather, ivory, slaves, and weirdest of all, ostrich feathers. Fair. So I mean, you know, they kind of fairly impressive. Yeah. Um, and one of their prime trading partners was Morocco to the very north of them. And the reason why that was so important was that Morocco was trading with just about every European power, which really? will become important later. Yeah. Mm. And in fact, uh, Queen Elizabeth I signed a trade treaty with the king of Morocco in that oh, time really? period. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. That's kind of Big cool. players you at that point, yeah. Yeah, you don't think about like Elizabeth and sort of trading with non-white people somehow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you, do, you, you don't. You get that kind of focus. But I mean, you know, this is the, this is the starts of Britain trying to become the wealthiest and most destructive force on the planet. So they need to start dealing with Africa soon. Well, that's the thing. This is the very beginning of the UK or England, sorry, becoming the nation which would become and it's an interesting empire. That, it's interesting that also Morocco is also at the kind of centre of that because they've always been such a successful powerhouse. So it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Another thing they have in common with their Moroccan northern neighbours is they're also an Islamic state. Okay. So they, they, but it's interesting actually. So the Moroccans were linked to the caliphs over in Baghdad. Go listen to our episode on Baghdad, episodes mm -hmm. on Baghdad. Um, but but down in the Songhai Empire, there was also the original native gods were also practiced. So there was a mixture of Islam and ah. animism, as we call it in today's so, lingo. So it's a bit like Christianity moving to Britain and they kind of the merging of, you know, we're, we are game for this brand new religion from across the seas, but we want to mix some of our own stuff into it. We keep some of our... Because a lot of the gods kind of became saints in, in, yeah. in kind of ancient uh, Britain. So I guess it's the same thing where they're like, they still want to be Islamic, but they want their own spin on it and to kind of work in their own... Uh, deities. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, wow. exactly. Um, and because they were at the edge of Islam, because they were obviously on the, there, there's nowhere further for them to travel, you know, because they're right yeah. on the coastline of West Africa. They were the furthest away, so they, they weren't interacting necessarily with um, you know, clerics coming from Baghdad very often. Yes. So there was yeah, enough yeah, room yeah. for the people of the Seton Dibi, that little village, to mm. worship the sort of they have household gods like you see in oh, see. you know uh, classical era uh, Europe, they would also mm. have them and then also have a mosque. So it's sort of like a mi right. mixture of the two. It's, um, yeah, they're not under the thumb of, of the caliphates, which are yeah. you know forcing strict Islamic doctrine. They can kind of work with it and, and, and let it work for them as opposed to forcing themselves into a, into a religion that might not work for them. I mean, exactly. I guess that's the yeah. case for religions across the world. It's the further you go out, you get the stranger traditions. And they're not strange, they're just... Uh, a better blending of the what the the cultures and the religious of the people who are there which actually is a much better way i guess for religion to work for people as opposed to force people to work for religion so yeah it's, interesting. it's the you wrong way around these, doing that way you yeah. get these much more interesting um setups oh, that's fascinating yeah yeah so uh to just put this songhai empire into sort of perspective for today's episode there are three major cities the the capital is gao like we just said Okay. Um, uh, then there was Timbuktu, which most people might have heard of. Oh, yeah. And then Jenny, which is the third one. So these three cities all lie on the river Niger. Jenny? And they are, yeah, Jenny. <laughs> How, how's that spelled? D-J-E-N-N-E. -N -N -E. Okay, right, right, right. Not J-E-N-N-Y. Yeah, okay. And they're all magnificent places. You can still visit them today. Gao less so, but the other two are still very well well known um so this was a very 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 successful um empire and it worked very well because it covered lots of different tribes but the thing about the the songhai was they were very accepting of lots of little sub tribes to let the so long as the the songhai ruled they they knew mm. think a bit like i hate how we keep making it eurocentric but think a bit like uh the holy roman empire right how that held yeah. together for over almost a thousand years was because you know they all kind of conformed to having a holy roman emperor but actually wasn't such a big deal on the local level yeah of. yeah yeah there's a, i mean that's quite a common design of government uh throughout history of where instead of really forcing people to be uh 
to your doctrine and to your exact way of living. You just kind of annex and encompass other cultures. And as long as they pay tribute, as long as they, you know, can be called upon for war, you don't really care what they're doing. Like, you can live your life exactly how you're doing it. You just have to give me a bit of money. And if you get attacked, maybe I'll come and help you. Like, that's kind of a really simple and effective setup for a government that's used time and time again. I mean, that's the setup for so many institutions we've we've learned about across the world it's just a very human way of setting things up it's yeah. you keep doing what you want to do just give me a little money and i'll go away yeah well so you have that system and then they're also backed up by their very very impressive cavalry so oh, okay. the songhai were were known to be like horse masters which is kind of funny because not funny kind of you wouldn't necessarily think that because i don't think you can get horses I don't think they breed normally down sub-Sahara. I don't know. Yeah. I think, feel like well, they're horses importing be, horses. That's kind of like a mark of the wealth and power of the empire, I guess, is the fact that they can afford to use horses. And that's an interesting thing because obviously horses are so ubiquitous for the rest of the world. But I guess in Africa, it is much more of a luxury. And it shows you as a very powerful force because horses yeah. completely change uh, battlefield techniques. And if you have them you can wipe out any enemy that doesn't have them in the same way that almost gunpowder does. But for them to have access to them in a place that doesn't have it, it's yeah, it, yeah it's a show of their power. It is. And it, uh, in its day, when they first began to be a very well-trained cavalry force, they, they, they were sort of at the, the forefront, at the very spear tip of technology changing. So no one else mm. was using horses. So the fact that they can move rapidly and hit the charge you know, full pelt on a horse, mm. that would have been terrifying to people who had never seen horses or or in battle anyway before. So that's probably why they were so successful at that time. Oh. But it's interesting you should mention gunpowder because that's going to come up later. Okay. So, sure. I mean, we're in that era. I mean, you we know, are, 16th we century, are. it is gunpowder time. <laughs> it's the beginning of gunpowder time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This is actually set, uh, let me work this out, something like two decades before the gunpowder plot. Oh really? Wow. In London. wow. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So in that sort another of way to like orientate yourself. So yeah, gunpowder yeah, yeah. is very much being used, but it is yeah. still in its early times. You don't have rifles or anything like that, but you're you're getting exactly. there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to get to the battle, as you might have, I've been hinting at for a little while, their yeah. northern neighbours in Morocco are right. trading with just about everyone up in the north, you know, north of them, um, and they're more strict in their Islamic faith in terms of the the rules. Ah, because so, they are so, so closely connected to the caliphates, they are uh, closer to the kind of fatherhood. In that kind of way, you know, the closer you are to the centre of the religion, you are more strict, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So they decide that the Songhai are too powerful and therefore need to be, like, knocked down a peg or two. <laughs> and also Fair. they're sort of blaspheming by including animists belief to thrive that in, sounds in... like a good excuse that really sounds like that sounds like a kind of crusader you know you know we, we need to go over there um because they've got all that land and gold and stuff i mean i mean obviously because they're bad at religion as well i mean that's why we're really going there but it's like you know you know but 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 but, but underhandedly get all the golden land as well but mate that's exactly right because the thing is um islamic states were not meant to attack fellow islamic states Yes. It was a big yeah. no-no. It was a massive no-no. It's not quite the same with the Christians. We were more <laughs> lackluster like that. It's but kind of, it's kind States, of, it was absolutely it, no-no. Shouldn't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of like that is, it's the same thing where you need to come up with a good excuse. And if you can yeah. come up with a good excuse, then you're you're golden. But if you, yeah. you need a reason. So I suppose that is a, arguably from the, you know, the much more powerful caliphate's point of view, it's a good excuse is that they are blasphemers. Even though, you know, Timbuktu was one of the principal hubs of uh, Islamic uh, academia for centuries. And in fact, wow. your person, Al-Khwarizmi, from uh, your episode From on, Baghdad. From yeah. Baghdad. He wrote about Timbuktu. So really? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Al-Khwarizmi. Oh, so what a guy. Al-Khwarizmi. When I was doing my notes, I saw that. I went, oh, I should tell Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, nice. Good link. Yeah, yeah. So... Um, the the king of Morocco decides that he's going to send one of his Spanish subjects who was a, and let me just say, Spanish eunuch slave general. There are so right. many questions there. <laughs> That's, yeah, there's a, there's a lot going on there, yeah. 
So the guy was kidnapped from Spain, uh, Morocco's neighbor to the north, uh, when he was five, and then at some point castrated, poor man, and mm. made a slave. And then he became such a powerful slave that because you could be a slave and still rise. It's like the Mamluks of Egypt were slaves. Yeah. Uh, but they were able to rise within Islam. So he becomes right. this slave general. And his name is Judah Pasha. Pasha tends Judah to mean Pasha. general. So like General right. Judah would be a better way mm. of doing it. But Judah Pasha is his name. Um, and he has been sort of brought up Moroccan, but he is definitely white. So I guess there are white people involved in this, but like it's uh, okay, <laughs> it's kind of accidentally. Um, but anyway, yeah. So he is given the sort of green light to take a Moroccan invasion force south and to try and basically break up the Songhai Empire and take okay. over the entire territory. Like you say, if you can so- chop off the head of the snake... You can then just keep everything else ticking on fine. Keep so, all the so they're not—they don't just want to like cripple it and stop it being from so powerful. They want to kind of take over. Well, yeah, but it was a bit of like a—it's like a venture. So they weren't sure whether or not it was going to go that far. Right. So they kind of were like, "If you can do it, go for it. If not, but really, that's we, fine we too. just you know we just need them to stop being such a threat. We just need them to be you know cancelled. You know that's you all know we what? need. Yeah. From what I can tell, the Songho had no interest in, in attacking North. They were very oh, really? happy. Yeah, they had all the gold. They had all the salts. You know, they had the ostrich feather, you know, the thriving ostrich feather market. How much, were they, how much were they charging on tariffs for imports and exports, though? I mean, that will be the big uh, question. That will be, be, <laughs> be where they're killing them. Well, actually, also interestingly enough, Morocco were having financial difficulties of their own because they were fighting Oh, Spain. here we go. Here we go. So it always comes back to money, yeah. It does. So they wanted to go raid all the gold mines and take all the gold, basically, so they could fund yeah. their their northern war. It's all it's all terrible. Anyway, yeah. So Judal Pasha's force starts to march south, and the first place to get to are the massive salt mines at Tagaza. And on his way down to the imperial capital at Gao, he burns them, destroys these these salt mines, wow. um, which he actually gets told off for. By the Moroccan king, because he's like, mate, we need that. What well, yeah, we need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> this is. You've done the exact opposite. You've gone there. You haven't defeated them yet, and you've wrecked all the things we need. Also, you fucking warned them you're coming because you just burnt the yeah. fucking place down. <laughs> also, yeah. Somehow you've burnt a salt mine. How do you burn a salt? How do, salt doesn't burn? I assume. I presume you a... burnt down the buildings. Yeah, yeah. It, so burn, like, you burn. can't I mean, like, extract it. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah, he killed yeah. lots of people as well. Um, so one of the reasons why this was probably a bit clumsy was actually because of the force he brought with him. Okay. Because for the most part, they weren't Moroccan-born. They were mercenaries. So the Moroccans mm. like to, to hire out, especially when they're attacking other Islam, Islamic states. An Islamic person should never kill another Islamic person. So, oh, but you can pay a non-Islamic person to kill another Islamic person. That is a great example. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, this is the thing. So actually, most of these guys apparently were from Spain or, you know, Europeans of some description, but under the jurisdiction of the Moroccans. So they're God, all is, the officers are Moroccan. That is such a strange setup and very backwards to what we normally think of, of history of, of Africa being pillaged for its people to fight or serve European, essentially Interest. European warlords and were yeah. European interests. And yet this is the reverse, is that they're actually using European... I guess kind of, oh, I guess mercenary slash almost slave labor because their general is a slave. So in a kind of weird mix to to do their fighting for them. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the force that he brings south was about, let me just uh, add up the things. Oh, yeah. Was just about 4,000 mercenaries. Okay. It's not a huge army. You know, it's fairly small, like a strike force, not like hordes. It's not like the Mongols. And they they would be kind of kitted out in a a European style at that time, I guess. So yes, so the majority, the the two, there were two thousand men armed with arquebuses, and they were known as arquebusiers. So oh. An arquebus is like these <laughs> hefty fucking guns. They're yeah. like they're the the thing that would become later a musket and then a rifle. They had arquebuses first. It's like the simplest idea of a gun. It's a tube with gunpowder. It's kind of just a small cannon. Kind of, isn't yeah. it? It's, it, it? And you have to set it up. I think you normally have to mount it, 
because you can't stand it. like it's, it's so it, fucking heavy it's just <laughs> someone's realized at some point oh if you make an explosion here put a heavy object next to it the heavy object flies in a direction put that in yeah. a tube and you've got something there but that's as far as they got they haven't got any further to rifling or to a musket or to lights or to a flintlock or anything like that it's just the simplest gun you could have yeah it's so true and actually the thing about the arquebus is it's very inaccurate but very loud Mm. The gunpowder, it wasn't very well put together, so it was actually a bigger bang. And actually quite a few arquebuses would just turn, they'd put um, axe heads on the end of the butt of the uh, the gun. And what they would do is they'd fire one shot, then they'd t- turn it upside down and hold it by the musket end and use it as a big club with an axe head. Because it wow. was much better to use it like that That's than hilarious. to fire it. Because well, it's, it's like, it, it's like um, bayonets. As in, and and the, sta- the standard, you know, kind of American Revolutionary War, that kind of, um, what's the word? The brown best musket. Yeah, like muskets with the bayonets. Yeah, because I've heard it said that they're, they're best described as a spear with one shot in it. And that's kind of the thing. Whereas these are just big, hefty axes with a weird cannon shot at the beginning. With just a loud fire bang. Off once, <laughs> and then you flip them around. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. They went, they went now nah, it's not going to make a spear. Make a hefty axe that you can swing and hit. Yeah, I, like exactly. I thought you so were going to that... say because you have if it fires off, presumably that axe head is going back quite quickly. I thought you were going to say they flip it round and then fire the axe head at people. <laughs> now that would be cool. That would I, be I imagine there was some way of like uh, they had a sheath on the axe, otherwise you'd probably cut, the kickback would kill shoulder. you. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, but anyway, wow. I'm not sure how that works. But anyway, so two thousand of those guys, right? Then you had five hundred mounted gunmen which is quite a weird thought. So I think they must wow. have had short pistols, like sort of flintlock pistols. Um, but yes, similar, yeah. 500 mounted gunmen. So 2,000 arquebuses, 500, 500 mounted gunmen, and then 70 uh, former Christian captives armed with blunderbusses. So I, <laughs> where they found these guys, you know what I mean? I just yeah. don't understand. This so is such a these, ragtag like, group of just like random armaments. Again, yeah, you can have these. Yeah, yeah, you can join the fight as long as you've got some sort of gunpowder weapon. Join the fray. It's that it's that era where they're not really sure. Like armies are changing from those medieval armies of sort of crossbows and longbows and then swordsmen and spearmen, knights, and yeah, heavy armor, yeah, knights. Yeah. To suddenly, no, we're going to use this thing which blows people up. So they can't yeah. quite work out what works yet. So like the 1590s is definitely a time of <laughs> big change in the in the military military mm. battle mm. sense. So on top of that, they were they were then had 1500 Moroccan lancers. So literally with a bloody long stick, if you okay. like. Yeah. Um, and then six Turkish ca- cannons. So wow, that was everything. But across, it took four months to move from where they started south, and it cost so many lives of soldiers oh, really? crossing this. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, because like, obviously you're going from oasis to oasis. So if you miss the boat or like, you mm. know, you, you get, you go astray for a day, you run out of water, you just die first. Cannon it's breaks down. Someone yeah. accidentally lets to... off an arquebus. Yeah. I was thinking about that. Trying to move these massive cannons across the Sahara Desert in that baking heat. It really does not seem like they thought that through. I mean, it this sounds like Europeans who do not quite get how difficult Africa can be and how inhospitable it is if you don't know what you're doing. And yeah, yeah lugging cannons across. There's not like nice old-fashioned Roman roads to follow or rolling hills where there's a, a lovely pond and a lake just over the hill. This is, you know, people learned how to survive here and you are out of your element. But I yeah, guess... absolutely. That is the, the, the usefulness of cannons and, and firepower is that they wanted to make that effort to do it. That's the thing. Once it's there, then you can use it, but you've got to fucking move it. Like four yeah. months of pushing that bloody t- Do you know how big you know? these cannons would have been? Because old, like really old old world cannons were massive, weren't they? They were like, yeah. like they taller were the than people, school... some of them. Yeah. Yeah, they wouldn't have been as big as that. They would have been fairly mm. s- small, but because they would have come from the Ottomans, and the Ottomans were very good with cannons. But yes. they were—I'm pretty sure they were pushed. These aren't horse-drawn cannons, because we're not in that era yet. So yeah. yeah, this is like this is would have hurt a lot. Anyway, so these guys end up at Tondibi, coming from the east, as annually saw. But coming from mm-hmm. the west is the Songhai response, because of course they've been warned by the Tagaza salt mines being burned. So the the, the ruler though is. Um, Askia Ishak II, and he was a bit of an idiot. 
when it came mm. to this because he'd had all this warning because he'd seen that Tangaza was in flames, but he doesn't really muster the army quick enough. It's a bit like um, in the Baghdad episode when we talk about um, when the Mongols attack and the caliph doesn't get enough of the Islamic states to send troops to defend Baghdad. Yeah. So then he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. you fucked it now. So anyway, <laughs> even so, he musters an army of 42,500 warriors to meet this Christ. force of about 4,000. So it's like a 10 to 1 difference. So, right? yeah, by normal standards, these are pretty poor odds. However, I imagine these are slightly ill-equipped soldiers. Well, this is the thing. So the cavalry, the Songhai are renowned for their cavalry. So they had 12,500 cavalrymen. So that's mm-hmm. a shit ton of cavalry. And they were like these super duper boss, like think like African knights. Let's put it mm. that way. Um, and Ooh, then wow. but the, the other 30,000 were infantry armed with spears and bows. And okay, that's the so crucial quite, thing. So good numbers, but not the most equipped. And I'm trying to imagine because, I mean, my main reference point for African soldiers would be kind of Zulu Empire kind of style. Because obviously they're not in heavy chain mail. Well, I assume they're not in like heavy chain mail or stuff like that. Or, or are they? Be wrong, sir. Especially wow. the knights. The, the African knights uh, are decked out in plate, different plate armor. But really? like sort of more, um, what's the word? It's like pieces of plate rather than, it doesn't, it's not like a suit of armor. Yes, be, yeah, not full suit. Yeah. And you uh, might have cool. a breastplate, but that would be right, about it. Right, right. Well, but I imagine, thing I is, suppose it would be similar to uh, when you see more uh, kind of Islamic soldiers uh, from the Middle East, that kind of era, because I assume they might take stylings a bit from that as well. So maybe that's what I've got in my head as well. But yeah, that's amazing. That, um, they also wear these long flowing robes, because the thing is they have, um, they're very good cotton weavers, like I mentioned earlier. So nice. like they, they, the cotton and silk, they ha- are very good at it. So like they, what they would have worn would have been brightly colored and fairly light, but not sort of Zulu. We're not talking like bare-chested men. Yeah. Like, they, these are much more, I would hesitate to say, much more sophisticated than the yes. Zulus. These yeah, guys well, are Z- like... well, Zulus is a very interesting thing. I mean, go go listen to that episode because their, their whole uh, view on war is very different because it kind of starts off as a not a real view of war, whereas these guys are, are, are packing to fight. Well, ish yeah. in the way that they do. Do just well, as a, do, you, yeah. do you have an image of it? Do, is there any like artwork? Oh or yeah, no. We, we, it'll be on the Instagram. It'll be on the Instagram, and I can show you later. Oh, well, I'm gonna have um, to. I'm gonna have to find that because this is. I, I need to visualize this because this sounds amazing. I mean, just the idea of African knights is fantastic and 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 really like great. And that's what we really like doing on this podcast is you just get stuck in this idea of. This is how this entire continent looks when they fight. And obviously you're wrong. Like every place, yeah. every time in history will do it slightly differently. And so it's fascinating to see this uh, like this version of African war and see yeah. how they fought. Yeah. Well, th- there you go. So um, we're at, the, at dawn at Tondibi. You've got uh, 50 yes. miles to go before Gao, which is the capital. And suddenly, Judal Pasha is met by this huge, hastily gathered force, but huge anyway, of, yeah. of cavalry and infantry, infantry being 30,000 cavalry, 12,500, armed with spears and bows, basically. Mm. And he's got six cannon, 2,000 arquebuses, and uh, some... Oh, and he's got his own gunman on, on horseback, and also he's got some spears of his own lancers, you know, some sure, Roman lancers. Sure, sure, sure. So and this is a very like, different forces. It's very much a time in history where... Most people probably would not really maybe appreciate how effective gunpowder is. I mean, when you're facing down 10 to 1 odds and it's a really fierce force of of imperial soldiers. I mean, you know, this is an empire you're facing and you've just yeah. got a couple of these weird tubes with black powder in them. And you're thinking... And you've just you've just lugged them halfway uh, across a continent, an inhospitable yeah. continent, off, across a desert, jumping between oases to oases... Yeah, I'd, I'd be terrified if I was them. The fact that the bloody thing's fired after all that moving is is, yeah. is a miracle. <laughs> um, so both sides have a uh, an ace up their sleeve for this battle. Okay. The Songhai ace was fairly simple. It was the cattle. So suddenly you've got these. Uh, there's about a thousand cows at Tondibi, which is meant to help feed the uh, soldiers, but also because of this trade caravan. 
scenario that was meant to be coming through. Um, right. They could use... So this is quite a common uh, Songhai uh, army tactic. They would use uh, these cattle, because these you got to think, right? A, a cow, I know it sounds silly, weighs about the same as a car. It's a yeah. ton. So that is a thousand kilograms. That is a fucking machine, if you can mm. use it, if you like. Yeah. Um, and, and what they horn to hell. Yeah. I mean, they've got mean-looking horns uh, that they're Sweet. using. So, wait, so are they using these as soldiers? Well, kind of. Not obviously not. Not like literally yeah. giving them like, here you go. Here's, yeah. here's a sword. <laughs> go fight for your um, empire. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, what they would do was they would uh, panic them and cause a stampede into enemy lines and break Lion lines. Them. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly like Lion King, yeah. Wow, that's rough. And that is really amazing given how important cattle are to sub-Saharan African communities and tribes because they are the lifeblood and yet they're willing to... I mean, they, that shows how powerful Songhai are, I guess. Well, this is the thing. The Songhai are beyond the subsistence level. They're not subsistence yeah. farmers, these guys, because they've got access to ivory, gold, salt. Like, yeah, these guys yeah, are, yeah. like, minted. So, th- I mean, obviously, it still matters to the villagers of Tondibi, but I'm sure, you know, they could probably be re- recompensed by the empire. Or, n- as a or not, and they're just ignored, or- more likely. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Or that, yeah, yeah. So that's the Songhai ace, the Moroccan ace, as is fairly so, obvious. Sorry, so the so the Songhai ace are cows. That's what we're going <laughs> <Yeah>. with. <laughs> okay, right, right. Yeah. Let me just let me just get that in my head before we jump to what I think we all know is the Moroccan ace up their sleeve, and perhaps I can see why this is a slightly imbalanced battle. Yeah, no, you got to remember this is one of those battles. Where this has never taken place, there's no precedent for <laughs> cows meeting gunpowder. Like, do you know what I mean? <laughs> this is unheard of in history up to this point, and so that's why this is kind of still an Pretty ace. Unlikely, you know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Moroccan sure, ace sure. are the are their guns, right? So uh, the Songhai mm. had actually never faced gunpowder weapons before. Really. Ever. I mean, yeah. I assume it's not, you know, it's an interconnection world. They know they exist, but have never faced a force of them. Yeah, they've never faced a trained army of them because they're the, they're the, the predator in their part of the world. So unless they go mm. out, they seem to be fairly insular. Like they don't sort of want to expand because they've got it so good, you know. So it's, it's always yeah. been a defensive thing. And so suddenly their northern neighbours have this new technology, you know. Yeah, it's sort of you get you get used to having the technological advantage that you are unable to... Uh, adapt to better technologies, which is, an, yeah. again, that's a very common uh, trait from human battles across the world and across history, is that if you get used to being the one in power, you get used to fighting very weaker forces and really not seeing battles as a win or a lose. It's either we win well or, oh my God, we still won, but like we lost so many people, what a waste of money. Whereas this yeah. is a very different thing. You are facing someone who is far better equipped Wow, okay, well, cool. This I, mean, you know, I also, to be honest with you, I think both sides felt like they had it in the bag before the battle started. So this yeah. is why it's like, a, you know, they're calling each other's bluff, you know? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So the big thing to remember is that arquebuses make a shit ton of noise, but don't actually do that much damage, even okay. in the hands of like trained mercenaries. Mm-hmm. But on this occasion, this is how it all happens. So here we go. Here's the battle. The Songhai charge or rather they they line up they've got their infantry in the center with the cattle in front of them so these thousand cattle have been driven the golden bullet of the cattle yeah exactly and then on the wings you had the uh the songhai 12,500 songhai cavalry knights if you like Mm -hmm. right and so and then you had archers and spearmen in the middle as i was saying so they then start to make all the noise they can to move these cattle to stampede towards the uh, the Judah Pasha's men. Okay. And they're, okay. They're, on the other side, they're set up in a sort of, I wouldn't call it a square because that's not happened yet. That that military technology hasn't arrived yet. Yeah. But basically, you've got the guns, basically trained forward with the cannons, and then you had the various gunmen, like the the Christian blunderbusses on the wings, and then sure. you. And then also you had, you know, the cavalry sort of milling around, not knowing quite where to start. Because obviously yeah, there's yeah. so many men, it could be very easy to be outflanked when you're such a small amount of men. So the Songhai send forward these thousand cattle 
So that's a thousand tons charging towards four thousand men. So it, I, I can understand. I can understand that tactic because that is it does make sense. It's a terrifying because it's not like you can fight a cow that's running at you. <laughs> like it's not. It, that's a real. I understand why they thought they had a perfect. You think about it, right? That is terrifying. The cow to to soldier ratio was one cow for every four mercenaries and if you think of a solid mercenary was maybe 90 kilos heavy you've Mm. got four of them you're not even half a cow and one cow is a thousand so it's almost like and even if you could somehow take on the cow there's still a huge imperial army right behind them it's not like you've made that many gains by taking out a cow so it's a, it's a strong battle tactic, and I, I, I really wish it goes better for them, but I somehow suspect it won't. So this is the thing. Judah Pasha then gives the order to fire all the arquebuses at the same time with the, uh, with the cannons, and that yeah. noise, I can't underestimate the sound that that would have made. It's not like modern guns yeah. today, which actually don't cause as much noise. These are very loud guns, so yeah. they just make the most biggest thunderclap of noise which actually stuns the thousand cattle in its tracks and they go fuck this shit they turn around and charge towards their masters oh my god yeah so then basically uh they decimate the center so suddenly you the cows do the cows just crash straight into the uh the songhai thirty thousand. And we got to remember these. The infantry are made up of lower. There's a caste system in in the Songhai um, Songhai society. So the guys on foot aren't as you know high up in the caste system as the guys on horses. So the, the poor you know the poor farmers who have been given a spear that morning, you know, have just oh. been hit by a, a cow oh, <laughs> by their own cattle. That's so yeah. harsh because they would be the you know they'd be the one they'd probably have to bring their cattle. You know, it's yeah. not, this is it's very different to European warfare, where not only do you have to send your sons, you have to send your cows as well. And that's <laughs> yeah. and then and then oh, and then they get come home with your them. cow or on top of it. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's brilliant. And unfortunately, the, they came home with the cow on top of them instead, which is a way worse series of events. That's exactly what so, a visual. And what that's a sad... These, oh, that's crushing. These poor, these poor Songhai soldiers get crushed by this by this charge of their own mm. cattle. Um, and they start running, basically. Um, but the thing is, it's not completely over because there is still the, uh, the, the horses. But the problem is that these horses were meant to just be... They were only going to be like... They'd be the hammer to the anvil. So without right. the anvil, which would be the 30,000 men, you're yeah. basically you're then like in trouble because you know you're still on horses so horses are mm. animals so they are also scared by the, the sounds which they've never heard they've never and yeah because they're not they're sound. not trained to because you know if you look at uh, uh battles in like world war Two or other you know very uh gunfire gunfire heavy battles the horses are trained to be to be okay with that to to respond well and to be okay to, regardless of gunfire gunpowder but in yeah. this case they can't do that for shit. And also there's a massive horde of cows running at them as well, which seems really mean. Exactly. And just, oh yeah, poor animals. So ba- basically, although there was resistance after this initial fuck up, um, it, it, it was over fairly quickly because the mercenary men, whilst they were horrible, they were like the worst Europeans you can imagine. Like these guys butchered and pillaged and raped their way through mm. the Tagaza salt oh, mines. Oh God. They um, mowed, they're very efficient soldiers, so they actually mowed mm. down the remaining Songhai troops fairly quickly. Now, right, obviously, right. the African knights were then like, okay, we need to get Ishak, of, Askir Ishak II needs to be looked after. So they basically, he gives the command to surround him and then make a retreat. So then they're all on horseback. So obviously, the, the Moroccans didn't bring that many horses. I mean, they obviously had mm. horses, but didn't have anything they could attack them with. So... The uh, the commander gets away. The general, not the general, the emperor of Songhai gets away with yeah. the majority of his African knights, but not with the soldiers. And literally, soldiers. that that battle was then over, and it led to the breakup of the entire empire. There was never wow. again another so even the massive. Em- even though battle. the emperor survived, the yeah. the the loss, the shock loss, 
from these from these Europeans or these Moroccans was enough to kind of cripple the empire. I mean, you know, that's it shattered its image. That's the thing. The yes. whole point was they were this and that is something that powerful. empires yeah. need so much is that because I think the best way to kind of understand an empire, or at least my understanding of an empire as opposed to a kingdom or something else, is that empires kind of need to be have this continual churn of warfare and conquest to keep itself up. And it kind of needs to have this reputation as unbeatable, and that's how it holds together. Kingdoms can normally survive a bit more because they're smaller entities, but this is a a force that is just convincing all these smaller tribes, nations, states, or even smaller kingdoms that we are so tough that you have to listen to us. So if you lose that, you've gone. Like there's nothing. There's there's, there's no way to hold everything together because you're the you're. Your reputation is ruined, especially the fact that you got defeated by your own cows. It's not a good look. <laughs> it's not, is it? It's not. And also because there's this new frightening technology which no one fucking knows about. So it's like, yeah. oh fuck, they've got like it's like today with nukes. When nukes first became a thing, it's like, oh shit, we're in trouble here, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, it's like so, it was like it's kind of like Japan's surrender. You know, they were completely outmatched by a, a technological advantage. Exactly. And it's a similar thing. It's oh, slightly actually, interesting the fact that they used their own technique against them because because i do i mean there's not an assumption i mean you said that they fired all the arquebuses and the cannons at the same time do you reckon what was his name uh pasha judah pasha judah pasha do you reckon judah pasha knew what he was doing and went yeah fire all these at once we'll send those cows the other way or they were just trying to kill all the cows to save their men i don't know i could have been either i think he was yeah. quite a scheming man he is known i've i've read up on the history that happened after the event and he seems to be quite machiavellian because what happens mm. is, and I'll go on to explain this, but he is a survivor, Judah Pasha. Really? Yeah. Uh, within his own political system that he's in, oh, he doesn't get ousted for a very long time. And actually, people try and oust him, and he gets them poisoned, he gets them shot. Like, he he remains Ooh. on top. So he's a bit of a, you know, he yeah, sounds a bit like of a, a Machiavelli. He sounds like it does sound like an interesting figure. I'm just thinking that now, now we're saying that, that would be a cool series to do on the kind of... Man, men and women behind the throne sort of thing and he sounds like that kind yeah, of guy yeah like little you know. fingers yeah the little very fingers yeah little fingers or viruses yeah 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 so to go on to the the consequence of the battle so it basically led to the collapse of the entire songhai empire which had been ruling <laughs> there for about 100 years um the the moroccans were kind of stunned with their victory apparently <laughs> they were like oh shit this was actually quite a big deal um, yeah. <laughs> so they proceeded to then loot and they get to the city of gao and gao has been emptied of of like the manger people because really? the king Ishak sorry the emperor says no we're fucking getting out of here <laughs> there's no way <laughs> we're not staying wow it's a real shame because Gao was this beautiful city of merchants and it was on the Niger River still is on the Niger River uh, which was kind of like the the Nile of of this kingdom mm. so it was like the real bountiful place and basically the the, the Moroccans or I said the Moroccans the Moroccan force of so the mercenaries the Europeans stormed it raised the city and just took whatever they could which is really was the the thing is this whole king this whole empire relied on three city states sorry three yes. cities gao timbuktu and jenny and what did they do they went down the river and raised and looted all three and as wow. soon as you do that those are the three powerhouses of the empire destroyed mm. so suddenly the songhai whilst they are still around they don't have the uh, infrastructure to organize a proper resistance so yeah. it became like thing having said that it's not all good news for the moroccans because the the songhai don't give up but they're no longer really the songhai they, they splinter into basically hundreds of tiny kingdoms and tribal areas um mm. and the moroccans are like, oh great we, we've taken all this land this is fantastic but then they need to stamp out all the other, you know, little uprisings and they get so destroyed in like guerrilla warfare. It was one of the first instances of guerrilla tactics used in the in this period of time, in the Renaissance era of, wow. of history. So they'd be down in the swamps. Um, there was a very there lots of swamps down there and the mosquitoes would give them malaria. And because oh, of course Christ. the local tribes were used to malaria and they'd built up a resistance to malaria so like they didn't have that problem and actually in swamps it's quite hard to mount an arquebus because there's no mm. fucking solid ground but the bow you can fire arrows no problem so they were yeah. just butchered you also can't really scare off mosquitoes with gunpowder in the way you can with cows 
interestingly. Oh, well, maybe you could for a second, but they can get back in very quickly and they won't stampede and destroy your enemy. It's interesting how much of the Songhai battle tactics involve... Uh, the animals of the of the places yeah. of of the of the wilds they live in, which makes sense because you know that's not something really Europeans can rely on because our animals can't do anything. But it's interesting that they are able to use uh, the their surrounding. You know, it's an understanding of the terrain, and that includes the wildlife that can be really Sweet. effective. Uh, well, so sometimes effective, not always. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this war became a protracted war that lasted nine years. For the Moroccans. And it cost them 23,000 soldiers. Remember, they invaded with 4,000. They kept calling for more. So it became like the Moroccan version of Vietnam. So they just just poured money into it. And they could have done so well if they just had that battle, sacked the three cities, leave. Like, that would have been far more effective. Would have done just as much damage. The yeah, yeah, the empire is now split into presumably internally warring factions. Maybe yeah. in a few hundred years they could get back up, but probably not. It will be you know by the time it's they're a threat again, it will be a whole new thing. All the people who are in charge of Morocco at that point will be dead, so they don't care. Just stick with the win and don't don't stay there too long and kind of well, ruin if- the entire the the entire action. Exactly. So by um, 1603, they basically pulled out and took um, as much money as they could with them. So they do actually come out of it with quite a lot of money. But the thing is, that money gets swallowed up into war debts. So really, they Mm. probably came out. But the thing is, what they did was they splintered that whole area of West Africa up into Mm. these tiny little rivalries. And Mm. what comes along later... The Europeans oh, come God. in and they side with one against the other and they pitch them and say, look, we'll take out your long rival, but we have to enslave them. And then because it wasn't an empire, they couldn't resist this incursion. So this so is this, like... This really kind of changed the face of the entire planet. Well, at least Europe and North America in a certain way because this a, a strong African empire could have resisted European colonization and completely changed the course of this part of the world's history yeah. and 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 it was because of this battle and this kind of this, shock win you can blame these cattle <laughs> on literally <laughs> you, well, don't blame the ca- you don't blame the cattle don't blame the cattle that's, i think that's i think that's me <laughs> it's true but that basically this one battle obviously this is like this led to the consequences but the consequences of this battle led to in some ways the enslavement of so many West Africans who were then sent yeah. over to the plantations 200 years later, I might add. Oh, no, 150 years later. Hmm. But I mean, you know, it all for, began. I suppose, for all we know, empires are always destined to fail anyway. So who knows if. But to fail so spectacularly at this point when you haven't got. Because at the time, as we said yeah. earlier, the Europeans are just starting to colonize. Yeah. So it's, it coincides with this, this time where, like, so the thing is, the Songhai did have slaves, they were hmm. enslaving their own people. But yeah, not yeah. to the same extent. They weren't, you know, it was sort of like a minor footnote within the empire. You know, it yeah. wasn't their main thing. They had the gold, they had the salt, they had the ivory, they had the, the ostrich feathers. <laughs> so they didn't need yes, to yeah, trade yeah. too much. And they slaves. wouldn't have, yeah, they wouldn't have been uh, as prodigious as the Europeans were when they arrived. You know, they, they're not in the business. An empire is not in the business of enslaving its entire people in the way that yeah. Europeans did when they arrived. So, yeah. It's it's very interesting to know what would have happened if they had been able to hold together. But I guess that's the same with most of history. It would have been very interesting to see it have gone the other way. And just to finish, um, I, I used an article which was absolutely brilliant uh, called Archers, Musketeers and Mosquitoes, The Moroccan Invasion of the Sudan and the Songhai Resistance by Lansine Kaba. She wrote this incredible um, this incredible article, but she ends her article by saying this. The invasion swallowed up both the conqueror and the conquered because the Songhai Empire dissolved, but the Moroccan state also did because wow. of the, the there was a regime change after this war because it cost so much money in soldiers and in actual money that it actually was a complete waste of time. So it was a colossal loss for this part of the world compared to other regions. This was like the big like. Mm. You know, this is the eclipse of this this time period. They're fascinating, yeah. and I had never heard this story. No, I didn't know absolutely anything not. about this. Didn't know the Songhai. So, didn't really. I don't even really know that much about Moroccan history, despite it actually being quite influential for a very yeah. long time. So it's that is that is fascinating, and yeah, so interesting that yeah, you really see how war is just 
useless for both sides and doesn't help anyone. So she helps the Europeans. That's the thing. So yeah. Anyway. Oh god. Yeah. Yeah. It, it our... helps the people who stay out of the war, which is normally yeah. us. And then we go and oh, and we'll just wait and roll in with tanks at some point. So. Exactly. So. That was, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed listening to that. Uh, we will have our posts up on Instagram at Cloak and Dagger Podcast. And please uh, like, share, follow, subscribe, tell a mate. Um, and yeah, just to finish, I just wanted to say the two articles I'd recommend is that first one by Lancine Kaba, K-A-B-A, which is Archers, Musketeers and Mosquitoes. And the other one is called Pan-Africanism, A Brief History of an Idea in the African World by John Henrik Clark with an E. So sorry, just had to put those in there because they were both brilliant. That's that's very good. That's good to know. Extra for what is it? Uh, additional reading is that what they call it in uni? Yeah, additional reading. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Additional reading. Yeah, yeah. some additional reading for you if you're both so are available on JSTOR, and you can get to on JSTOR. Uh, you just have to have an email address, and then you can download a hundred articles a month. So yeah, yeah, not yeah. Behind and the if you, uh, well, you know, it does spend too long in JSTOR because you'll start to realise how we come up with all our, all our stories because it's basically all from there. Um, yeah. But it, no, it is a good resource. So, but thank you very much. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Will, for telling such an amazing story. And we'll see you all next week. See you then.